Welcome to Clay Community Church. I am Pastor Greg Phillips. And uh, I've been in ministry for about 17 years now, active ministry, I would say, uh, official ministry for about 17 years. But I've been a, a believer since I was very young. I, I remember, and I've shared my testimony, just seeing God at work in the life of my parents, my dad. Uh, was drawn to alcohol quite a bit. He drowned his sorrows in that. And him and my mom were fighting constantly all the time. And there was kind of a dark cloud over our household. But the day that my mom and dad both uh, came to believe in Jesus, that I, as a young man, as a very young man, I saw that cloud was lifted. And I saw that suddenly there was joy, there was peace in our household, there was love, an abundance of love. And so I got to witness that very early on, and, and since that time, I've been hooked on Christ because I've seen what he has done to the human life, to the human household. And, um, and so, but I, I, I believed very early on, and I was baptized when I was in high school, started to take Christ seriously and really pursue Christ seriously. And then it wasn't until after uh, college when I felt the call into ministry. And so I've, I've seen quite a bit, and I've, I've uh, witnessed quite a bit, and I've, um, I've had conversations with many people, and I've counseled with many people over the years, and I've seen the progression of the Christian life over the years. And as a pastor, as an active minister, um, especially beginning in youth ministry, I have seen people come to the Lord, and then I've seen people fall away from the Lord, I've seen people recommit their lives to the Lord, just um, go through the ebb and flow of trying to live their lives for God. And the more or the longer that I have been a Christian and the long, longer amount of time that I've been in active ministry, the more I have grown to really, really hate sin. Because I have seen what sin can do to an individual life. I have seen what it could do to a family. I've seen what it could do to a community. And I'm seeing what it can do to a country and to the world. And so I've just grown to really hate sin, but at the same time, I'm growing to love sinners and understand sinners. Because after all, all of us are sinners. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, all we can claim to be is sinners who are saved by the grace of Christ. And so, it's a weird dichotomy, where I, my hate for sin is growing, but my love for the sinner is also growing. And so, as a pastor, I have this commitment in loving each and every one of you to the best of my ability, and part of that includes addressing the sin in our life. Because today, as you've probably noticed, that um, places that call themselves churches or, or Christians or, are really adopting progressive ideologies, which are starting to um, lead these churches away from the gospel. I've seen this uh, hyper-grace doctrine that has grown in churches where it's, it's all about grace and we never address the sin problems. We never talk about sin. It's like the S word of the church that you're not allowed to talk about. You're not allowed to talk about 
sin in detail or, or confront sin or correct or rebuke or train because that is judging or that is unloving. But when we look at the scripture, which is our only rule of faith and practice as believers, we find that sin is talked about a lot. A lot, a lot. It is confronted a lot. And so today, at Clayton Community Church, I am going to draw a very clear line on sin. And I'm also going to be calling us as the church to seek God and His righteousness more and more. I'm calling us as a body of believers, those who love Jesus Christ, to repent of our sins. Repentance. And so before we can do that, we need to have a proper understanding of what is sin? And what should our attitude be towards sin? How, how should we handle the sin that we discover in our own lives? And how should we confront or address sin that exists in the lives of those around us? And how should we view the sins of the world? Any of you tune into the news or flip through Facebook and are just appalled by the sins of the world? Well, my hope here today is that all of us will come to a greater understanding of sin and thereby repent from our sin and grow in our righteousness. And if you are here today because I have promised you that uh, this sermon has been sitting in my back pocket for a while, I intended to give this about a month ago, and then uh, God changed my mind at the last second and gave me different topics to talk about. Uh, and if you're here today because I promised you that this sermon was going to ruffle some feathers, well, uh, that's next week's sermon. <laughs> this week's sermon is the primer. Next week's sermon, we're going to dig deep into very specific sins. We're going to call out sins by name and, and what they really are. Um, and that one, I guarantee you, each and every one of us, we're going to have to take a very good look into the mirror at ourselves. And for many of us, it's going to be painful. I know every time I approach the scriptures, I do it as if it's a mirror looking at myself. And I examine myself, and oftentimes it's very painful. Because before I preach about anything, I need to make sure that my life is in order as well. And sometimes as I'm studying, that conviction hits me. And I have to wrestle with that throughout the week. And so next week, primarily, will be a wrestling week. So if you don't feel like being convicted, <laughs> if you want to go somewhere and have your ears tickled and told, you're doing just fine, nothing's wrong, you don't need to change a thing, you're perfect just the way you are, then you might not want to come here next week. So, let's pray. Let's discover what the Bible has to tell us about sin. Father in heaven, we give you praise and glory for your goodness. As we're thinking about sin and all the problems that it brings to our own lives, to our families, our community, our country, the world, Father, we're reminded of your grace. We're reminded of the fact that you came and you died on our behalf. Because we've proven that if it's up to us, we cannot live righteously for you, but we choose sin. And so, God, thank you for coming being the perfect person, dying on the cross, making atonement for our sins, so that all we have to do is seek you 
believe in you, confess in your name, and you promise that we will be saved. Thank you, God, for your patience with us as we try and wrestle with our sin and as we're drawn more and more towards righteousness. Thank you, God, for loving us in our imperfection and for being patient with us as we grow. So help us in this hour, God, to have a right understanding from your word about sin, to have a right attitude about it, and to be able to interact with one another in an appropriate way concerning sin. So we thank you for your word, and thank you for ears that hear. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So first of all, what is sin? Well, in a nutshell, sin is rebellion against God and his creation or his creative order. The concept of sin is first and foremost a religious concept because all sin is essentially rebellion against God, God's laws, God's created order, God's covenants, and God's good intention for us. And when you look through the Bible and you look at the words, the Hebrew words and the Greek words, the Aramaic words that refer to sin, all of them have to do with the deliberate act of defiance against God. 1 John 5.17 defines sin very clearly. All wrongdoing is sin. And the primary emphasis of this word in most of its uses points towards sin practices that are knowingly and intentionally lawless. So 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Hebrews 10, 26 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after, receive, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So, first and foremost, the attitude of rebellion against God and against his law, his ordinance, his character, his creative intention, that is ultimately what a sin is. And there's a difference between practicing sin, practicing unrepentant sin, and the occasional unintentional slip-up. Because how many of us each week as well-intentioned as we are to serve God and do what's right, make mistakes and unintentionally slip up. Yeah. <laughs> Whose hand is the highest? You're the most honest. Yes. Yeah, we all mess up even though we try so, so hard. So there's a difference between that, which we all do, and the practice of sin. And by practice, I mean, you put this in terms of sports, for example, if you practice, you show up to a place at a specific time every day, every week, for the purpose of working towards improving on something. If you practice sin, that means that you are constantly dedicated to doing that thing, even doing that thing more and more, better. Sinning better, growing in your ability to sin and to fool people about your sin. The practice of sin, the habitual practice of doing what's wrong and rebellious against God. There is a difference between the two. But ultimately what we know is that sin, whether intentional or unintentional, is corrupting. Sin is the basic corrupting agent in the entire universe. 
when God spoke the world into motion and established boundaries and rules for living creatures to live in this paradise he created, which he considered to be very good, he also, in doing that, created the possibility for rebellion. The Apostle Paul, uh, in the book of Romans, if you've never read the book of Romans, it's very foundational and fundamental to understanding our faith and understanding the concept between righteousness and sin and how we ought to operate. But Paul oftentimes goes into philosophy in the book of Romans. And he admits that he really wrestles with this idea of the law and sin. In Romans chapter 7, verse 7, he says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. And so when God gave Adam and Eve in the garden very simple rules to live by, uh, a job to do, things to do, but also the rule of do not eat from the uh, fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can, you can eat from all these other trees, just not this one tree. And so by in, in putting that law or that rule into creation, he also provided the opportunity for us to rebel against that law. And so Paul really wrestles with that. Well, if there was never any law, then there would be no sin. So it's the law's fault that we sin. Why doesn't God just remove that law? Well, the book of Romans tells us the whole purpose of the law is to demonstrate the fact that if left to our own devices, if given our own free will choice to choose what we do, then we will always choose to sin against God, despite the fact that he is good, perfect, holy, righteous, and just. And so, the law simply exposes us for who we really are. But it also exposes God for who he really is as well. Because without the law, without the choice to sin against him, and without the possibility of redemption through Jesus Christ, his son, we would not know God to be a savior. We would not know God to be gracious or kind. And so, philosophically, we wrestle with these things. But ultimately, we know that as soon as Adam and Eve rebelled against God's one rule, thereby they exposed themselves to be sinful against God, unholy, unlike God. And they were removed or kicked out of this paradise and this perfect intention God had wanted for us. And the fact is, this is the, the nature of man. We are sinful people. Every single one of us is a sinner. sinner. So much so that David, you know, he, he makes the, he presents the idea that we're sinners even from the womb. That as soon as we get out of the womb, we're looking for ways to sin. I mean, that's just the character of man. It's inevitable. It's inevitable that we are all sinned. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When you look around the world and you see the decay, the destruction, natural disasters, everything that we look at that is hard to deal with, that is uh, 
burdensome to us, that is strenuous to us, all those things, all those heartbreaking things, are ultimately the result of sin. Because not only did corruption enter into us when we sinned against God, but also corruption entered into God's creation as well. And that's why the ground we walk on is not absolutely stable. It's shifting sand. Uh, it, it crumbles. And that's why the Bible calls us to stand on the firm foundation, the rock that is Christ Jesus, that never shifts, that never crumbles. He is the only sure thing that we can stand on. So sin is the basic corrupting agent in the entire universe. Uh, I've often heard sin referred to in this way, that sin is missing the mark. Any marksmen here? People who like to shoot your guns at targets and try and have a nice grouping that's really close, hitting the target, as, uh, the bullseye, as often as possible. Anybody do archery? Targeting? Yeah. That's pretty cool. How many of you guys have been able to go like a perfect 20 for 20 hitting the bullseye every time you shoot? <laughs> CJ? Yeah, it depends on yardage, but yeah. Yeah, the yardage. So within two feet, you're probably hitting <laughs> each and every time. But if you're really a good marksman, you put that bullseye, you put that target a little farther out. And as any of us know, it's really, really hard to do that Robin Hood thing where you're, you're splitting the arrow in twain every single time, right? Essentially, sin is missing the mark. And perfect righteousness is to be able to hit the mark every single time. And if you miss the bullseye by even that much, just once out of 20, that's still missing the mark. You've still fallen short of perfection. Because uh, Christ alone, Jesus Christ, which is why we hail him as the greatest person, our Savior, the Lord, is because he did hit the mark. He's a regular Robin, but he hit the mark every single time. But all of us, especially if we're honest with ourselves, we know we can hit the mark probably a lot, but there's times when we miss the mark too. And that means that we are imperfect. We are sinners. That is sin. That's the idea of sin. We're missing God's mark of perfect righteousness and holiness. And that's the ex expectation of God. If we're going to be in a right relationship with him, then we need to hit the, on our own power, we have to hit the mark every single time. But what have we found out? We can't do that. And so what do we need? We need somebody to take our place. We need somebody to, to fill in for us. And that's exactly what Christ did. He filled in for us. He hit the mark. And so that all who put their hope and trust in him can be counted as righteousness on his behalf. All sin, ultimately, if you get down to the nitty-gritty, is idolatry. At the heart of sin, or the nature of sin, is the desire to be the God of our own making, or masters of our own destiny, kings of our own kingdom. But the fact is, we are not gods. We didn't make all that we see, or set the rules and the boundaries of the universe. God did that. 
He is the creator. We are his creation. God determines what is right, what is good, what is righteous, and what is sinful, what is evil, what is wicked. God is the one who determines that. God alone has the authority to determine that. And all the Bible says that all people, all people are at some point or another, at least for a while, conscious of sin. I mean, sin is ultimately the concern of the church, yet every human being can still find some kind of common ground or consensus on some things that are good and evil. I mean, even here in America, uh, we have the United States Constitution, we have certain laws and things that we try and abide by, and many of these laws are based upon biblical principle. I mean, that's what the Founding Fathers set out to do. Uh, but they also set out to give us relative and general freedoms that we can enjoy, even if we are not Christians. And so we find ourselves in this melting pot of a society with people who are Christians, people who are declared atheists, people who are Muslims, Buddhists, I mean, you name it. And yet we can, for at least for a while, we've been able to function as a society because we've been able to generally appreciate the fact Hey, I'm not going to murder you because murder is wrong. Don't murder me. Okay. I'm not going to move our boundary stones of our property if you don't move your boundary stone. What? How can the atheist and the Christian both agree on those things? Well, it's because, as the Bible says, God has implanted into every single one of us a conscience to know the difference between right and wrong. Romans 2, 14-15 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. But the longer a person sins against God, rebels against God, rejects God, the more that that conscience becomes seared, as with a, a hot iron. It's more that their ability to judge what is good and evil gets broken. First Timothy 4, 1 through 2 says, In later times, some will depart from the faith, and by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insecurity of liars whose consciences are seared. So the longer someone lives in sin, the less they're able to identify sin. And that's why, ultimately, why I think we have such a backward society today, because as a culture, the culture is turning away from God, and therefore the culture is developing a seared conscience, where good is evil, evil <coughs> is good. Man is woman, woman is man. I mean, all these different things that are upside down and backwards, is the result of a seared conscience of, of a society. And that all starts with turning away from God, rejecting God and, and his offer of salvation. Sin ultimately is a sickness that separates us from God. You think COVID-19 has separated us from certain people or, or certain family. Well, consider the fact that sin can lead to separation from God. 
Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. Hosea 9.5, Every evil of theirs is in Gilgal. There I began to hate them. Because of the wickedness of their deeds, I will drive them out of my house. I will love them no more. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21-23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So obedience, he's talking about here, is the evidence or the sign of someone who truly and genuinely has been born again by God and loves God. That, that pursuit of righteousness, I talked about earlier the habit of unrighteousness, the constantly finding ways to sin more and sin better, the pursuit of sin. Well, for those who are saved and born again, our pursuit shifts to now a pursuit of righteousness. How can we do more and more good? Never perfection until we reach heaven with him, but constantly moving towards that perfection rather than away from that perfection. To obedience rather than rebellion. And you have many people, I don't know if you've met people like this, who love to write down on, on uh, the paperwork that I'm a Christian, or even on uh, exception to COVID-19 mandates, I'm a Christian. They love to write and, and identify as a Christian in certain scenarios, but in their life, in their actual life, they're not living in any kind of obedience to God at all. There's no fruit. There's no evidence. They simply identify as a Christian. And I say to you that that's the exact same thing as a biological man claiming to identify himself as a woman. So a Christian who claims to be a Christian but doesn't live out the life, uh, that actual life, is a liar and is false. And Jesus here calls us calls them out for them. Because he says here, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then he will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you sinners. <clears throat> Separation between God Sin is what causes us to be distanced from God. And even as a believer, if you're a true believer, if you backslide or you, you start to get kind of caught up in an old vice, it kind of remains the same, though I believe that you still have your salvation. But you will feel like you're separated from God. You'll feel like you're in a long-distance relationship with God. Uh, as a youth pastor, I remember talking to some of the students and who started out on fire for God, loving Him, doing everything they can to please Him, studying the Scriptures day and night. And then suddenly, they would come to me and say, I feel like God is so distant from me. I feel like He's so far away. Why do I feel that way? And I'd turn to them and I'd ask them, well, is there anything you're, you're doing that you're not supposed to be doing? Is there a, a sin that has taken hold of you? And sure enough, if they're willing to admit it, they'd say, yeah, actually, I, 
than cinnamon for love. Here's your sign. <laughs> Here's your sign. The Bible is full of instruction about how God will distance himself from us when we are proactively sinning. And so if you feel that way today, maybe you should ask yourself, what am I doing? Why do I not feel near to God? Why does he not feel near to me? Am I doing something wrong? Do I need to repent? Do I need to change? But ultimately, sin is very costly. And this is where I think we need to make sin a big deal. Because I think we've watered it down. Um, we don't respect sin nearly as much as we ought to. Sin is very costly. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paradise lost was the price that we paid for our sin. And our sin also nailed Jesus to the cross. He was the perfect man. And if you think of Christ, Christ was a real person. Christ was the incarnate God on earth who walked perfectly, lived perfectly. And if you think of the ideal of a perfect man in every way, Christ is it. But what did we do as human beings? We betrayed him, and we nailed him to the cross. The governing authorities, citizens, betrayed Christ, the perfect man, and nailed him to the cross. That's what sin does. Sin is costly. It destroys that which is, is good. And so, the damages of our rebellion were and are very expensive. But thankfully, God is willing to pay that price for all who believe. God has lots of riches and he can cover the costs. But it's important that we understand the fact that sin costs something. It's very expensive. And I think we cheapen the grace of God when we take sin for granted, when we water it down, when we, when we don't repent, Cheapen that grace of God. So therefore, sin should repulse us, and we should hate it. If we love God, if we're thankful for that price that he paid for us, if we're thankful for the salvation, I mean, how, how many of you are thankful for the fact that when you, when you die, you know where you're going to go? Amen. How many of you are thankful for the fact that Christ helps you through any crisis, no matter how bad it is, he comes in and he comforts you. And he empowers you to make it through. Amen. If we're thankful of that, if we love him for that, we should hate that thing that is offensive to him. That is, goes against his character. And that separates us, us from him. And ultimately, that causes the death of all who reject him. We should hate sin more and more. And there's no dispute in the fact that God himself hates sin. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, God says. Proverbs 6.16-19 There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him, haughty eyes, lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. 
God hates sin and so should we. Psalm 8.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And so God hates sin. Why? Because he, because he loves his creation. He loves each and every one of you. And he loves the world. The most popular Bible verse. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. He loves each and every person. And he hates it when a person chooses sin over him. Not because he's some kind of megalomaniacal uh, king. No, it's because he genuinely has a love for the people he's made. Young and old. He loves us. And so God hates it when we choose that thing which causes us to die and be separated from him. It's a strange thing because God doesn't need us. But somehow he still wants us. Isn't that strange? I mean, in the midst of your sin and your conviction, you sit there, you're like, why does God even love me? I'm such a filthy person. But he does. He really does. He would not have done what he's done. He would not have held on to his relationship with you and been patient over all these years if he didn't love you. God also commands us as well to hate sin like he hates sin. Psalm 97.10, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Romans 12.9, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. I was talking to you about how I, I've grown to really hate sin, particularly addiction. I've dealt with a lot of addiction issues. And when I first became the lead pastor of this church, there was a mom from the community, and she had three young boys. And she was able to have visitation rights with her three young boys in the hopes of hopefully getting custody of her boys. But one exception was she had to get maintain a job and not touch drugs. She had a job, and she was really struggling about the drug part. And by the way, her drug of choice was meth, which chemically, spiritually, is a really hard thing to kill. And so she would meet with these boys who I fell in love with, just nice young men, just, you know, just really near to the heart of, of God, just in their innocence. And you could tell that she really had a love for these boys, and she was, she was trying really hard, and she was staying clean. And this happened for about three months, and she would come here every single week faithfully. I'd get to hang out with the boys, and it was just a really good time. I was really hopeful that she would continue to do well. But unfortunately, one week, they didn't show up. And when I called to pursue what happened, I found out uh, she went on a meth binge again, got into some trouble, and she lost any possibility of custody of those boys. And it just, that's not the only situation I've seen, but that's one that really broke my heart in ministry. And one that made me just see how damaging sin can be. 
Those young boys will not know the joy of growing old with care. She is going to be from a distance from now on. And that's just one example of what sin can do. Many of you, maybe in, in your childhood and growing up, many of you have seen the effects of sin. But that's just what happens in this life. What happens in the next life, if someone dies in their sin, is far, far worse than anything that we see that happens here. The negative effects of sin that we see happen here are merely a shadow of what happens in the next life. And the things that happen here are God trying to prompt people to wake up, to repent, to come to him, Seek forgiveness, to receive joy and life, life that is truly life. So when God catches you in your sin and bad things happen as a result, that's God knocking on your door. I've seen some people who respond to that very strongly, and I've seen people ignore that knock their whole life. I've officiated funerals or people who have rejected Christ until the very end. Mm. I've done funerals for people who in the very last moment <laughs> confessed and realized they had been living wrong their whole life. And you know what? That person in the very end who gave their life to him, they are with him in paradise today. Amen. Because they finally answered the door, even in the final hour, they answered that door and God was still knocking. God commands us to hate sin, and I can tell you I'm, I'm there. If you're not there yet, um, why don't you go serve in the community a little bit? <laughs> serve, in, uh, serve people with broken homes. You'll, you'll get there pretty quick. The Bible says to not merely walk away from sin, but that we should flee. And it's a very strong language here. 2 Timothy 2.22 So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flees from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, as we know, is a temple of the Holy Spirit. When you believe in Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God is given to you as a deposit that lives inside of you, that is counseling you according to the Word of God. That is leading you in your decision-making and leading you in all truth. And so our body no longer belongs to us. But rather, God is giving us the Holy Spirit, and he is expecting us to take care of our body and our person in which his Holy Spirit dwells. And so whenever we commit sexual sins, for example, uh, we are sinning against that temple. You're sinning against God's gift. Uh, James 4, 7 likewise says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Timothy 6, 11, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Talking about sin. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Any of you here today, uh, over the, what, two weeks ago, um, when that fire was coming over that hill, how many of you got a 
phone call or a notice that said, you need to evacuate right now. Level three evacuation, get your important stuff, get your pets, get things, get out of it. Okay, that is the urgency and the idea behind this word, flee. Whenever we recognize that there is sin in our life, or there is sin happening around us, the Bible says that we are to flee, as if we're in a level three evacuation. Not just, oh, yeah, this, it's not a big deal, as the fire's burning, running down that hill, coming right for your home. Ah, it's not, no big deal. I watered the lawn yesterday. I'll be okay. No, but to open your eyes and realize the fact that death and destruction, chaos, are knocking at your door. And if you don't flee, if you don't grab what you have and get the heck out of there, it will consume you. And not only you, but possibly your family, the people you love. Flee from sin. Don't poke it with a stick. Don't play around with it. Don't let it linger. Don't put it in some kind of a, a, a glass case and watch it. Flee from it. Sin is a monster that we must flee from. Unfortunately, too many Christians, I think, play games with sin. We let it linger. We play these justification games. Well, maybe it's not really a sin because of this. No, when we identify we clearly understand what the Bible says about sin, which again, we'll talk about next week. We're going to lay it out so that we all understand. Once we identify something's a sin, we need to get out of there, get it out of our lives. Uh, Jesus uses very harsh language. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge out your eye. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Now he's not literally saying to do those things. He's trying to impress to you the urgency Flee from it. Whatever you got to do, sever that from your life. If that means breaking off a lifelong friendship, so be it. Save yourself and your family. And then from a distance, maybe you can pray for that individual who was an old friend, an old sibling buddy. Maybe God will awaken their heart as well. But at the cost of you losing your own life and your family's life, be careful about keeping those relationships on that regard. We need to flee from sin. Next, uh, just because we need to flee from sin doesn't mean we need to fear sin. There's a difference. We don't need to fear sin or temptation. Because the Bible is very clear that once you come to a born-again relationship with Jesus Christ, again, His Holy Spirit is in you, and He will see it through until the end. He will carry you through until completion. He will sanctify you grow you in righteousness until completion. So because of that, we're not to fear sin, we're not to run around, oh, I'm sitting around the corner, it could be right there. No, we're to live bold lives, confident lives, reaching out to a sinful world. We're not to run away from sin in that regard, we're not to fear sin in that regard, but rather we are to be confident that Christ is guarding us and protecting us and he's leading us in all truth and righteousness. So if you've been born again by God, you can be sure of this, according to Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So take losing your salvation off the table. 
Take that off the table. If you have truly come to believe in him genuinely, you love him with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, you want to commit your life to him, if you've been baptized as a way of expressing that serious commitment, then you have nothing to worry about as far as losing your salvation. He will see you through. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. This is Jesus talking. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And this is why Paul can say in Romans chapter 8, 38, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you love him, truly love him, you are born again, you are secure. Take that off the table. Take that weight off your shoulder. And be confident in the fact that he has saved you already. You are saved. Because what that does is that prompts you then to live for him out of a thankful heart rather than, well, I better check off all my boxes this week or else I'm going to hell. No, if you believe in Jesus, he's going to help you check those boxes. He has checked those boxes for you and will walk you through them. And so in that way, we don't need to fear sin as if it will ever truly, truly take hold of us again. Because of our confidence in Christ, we put no confidence to, in sin to have power over us again. Because if he has set you free, finish that sentence. You are free indeed. You are free from sin and death and the captivity of it. But rather, you belong to him. He has purchased you, and he will never let you perish. And so we need to respect sin, acknowledge that it is dangerous, flee from it when we find it anywhere near, but we are not to ultimately be afraid of sin in that way. So that comes to what we're going to talk about next week, and I won't get into too much detail there, but we do need to call out sin by name. And next week, uh, I'm going to help you do that. I'm going to list, list out about five to ten Sins that I think are a big problem in culture today. Because when, it, when you go throughout the Bible, you'll find the Apostle Paul, for example, he makes like certain lists, or Timothy makes a list of, of things that are sins, but they're never fully comprehensive. Some of them vary. The reason for that is dependent on who these preachers are speaking to. For example, the book of Corinth, which we're going to start 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians in October, the Church of Corinth had a lot of issues. Uh, I mean, family members were sleeping together. They were getting drunk before worship service and before uh, the potlucks. And they were, I mean, they were just doing all these things. So Paul addressed those things. Whereas if you look at uh, some of the other letters, they don't address those things. And so the reason for that is because at the heart of sin, it's always rebellion against God, but we all struggle with different things, either as a culture or as an individual. And so what I want to do is, is take five or ten sins that I think 
we as a society today really struggle with, especially you know, from um, working with, with all of you, the things that, that we struggle with, maybe even as a church. And I want to walk through each and every one of those, call out the sin by name, look at every little nuance that goes with it, and just uh, as we, I talked about last week or the week before, I mean, you look at alcohol, the Bible neither, neither commands or fully condemns the use of alcohol in the Bible, at least for the Christian believer. But there is nuance to that. Obviously, drunkenness, there is instruction on not getting drunk. There's instruction on not drinking so that other people who have an alcohol problem stumble and fall. And so there's nuances with these sins that we need to understand. We need to see where those boundary lines are. Because it's not always uh, black or white. Uh, sometimes it's, there's some nuance to it. And so we'll look at that next week. Uh, in the meantime, though, I just want you to consider the words of Christ. Matthew 22, 35-40 says, A lawyer asked him a question, Jesus, to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And there's a lot of commandments from the Old Testament. 600 some odd, between 600 and 900 is what scholars figure. But there's that many. So which one is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So every sin you could bring up fits into those two categories. Either you're directly offending God and His holiness, or you're uh, offending your neighbor, you're sinning against your neighbor, which also, coincidentally, is sinning against God. And so any kind of sin category you can think of fits into those two. So for this week, as you're thinking about your life and you're examining yourself, ask yourself if there's any question about a behavior, is this a sin against God, or is this a sin against my fellow man? And there's a lot of people today who are especially taking the love your neighbor part and twisting and manipulating what that really means. Because people are saying, well, if you love your neighbor, then you'll go get this vaccine. And if you don't go get the vaccine, then you hate your neighbor. And you want grandma to die. Okay, that's horrible uh, rendering of that text. So, it's not as cut and dry as people think. It's not as cut and dry as people think. And so we need to actually walk through that and look at what does it mean to love your neighbor? Because part of that is also telling the truth. Telling the truth. Not giving people everything they want, but telling them the truth, even if they hate you for it. And so we need to look at that. But I want you to know also there are unlisted sins that we need to be careful about. First of all, the sin of the failure to act or to live by faith. James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Remember how I talked about the Holy Spirit that inhabits every true believer? There's a lot of things that the Bible doesn't specifically cover that you're going to run across in your life and have to make a decision about. I mean, for example, you go to the vaccines. Where in the Bible does it tell you to get a vaccine or to not get a vaccine? Oh, well, it doesn't specifically say, does it? Okay, well, that's, that's when it requires the wisdom of God, knowledge of the Scripture, and the leading of the Holy Spirit 
to be able to make decisions for ourselves. Because God is calling each and every one of us in a unique, unique way. He's not speaking to you the same way he's speaking to me, as far as what our calling is, what our gifts are, what we are to do. And if you look throughout the Bible, the way that God has called certain people, a lot of times it has gone against convention. I mean, look at Noah and his family. Well, everybody's off partying and sinning, having a good time. Here's Noah and his family up on a hill building this ark. What are you doing building a giant boat on land? That makes no sense. Well, God told me to. Oh, crazy guy. I mean, how often does God lead us to do things, even in small ways, to not get on that bus? And you don't know why. I just knew I wasn't supposed to get on that bus. Pop on the news later, you find out that bus wrecked. Everybody on board dead. I've heard stories of that with plane crashes, where people just, in, in their prayer, God has impressed upon them, don't go on this trip. Don't go on this trip. And faithfully, they listen to him. And then they find out that plane burned and crashed. And so, the failure to act against God's will is ultimately a sin against God. When God called Abraham to go to the place he would show him, if he said, I'm not going to do that, God, that would be a sin. And his life would not be counted as righteous and faithful acts. If Jonah continued to run away from God and his call to go preach to the Ninevites, the whale would not have been the end of it. Um, he would have been sinning against God, but ultimately God inspired him <laughs> to be faithful. Specifically, the Bible talks about the sin of ceasing to pray. 1 Samuel 12, 23 says, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Um, I'm going to save the rest for next week. But I want to leave you with this. I hope and I pray that this week as you're considering your own life and your own behaviors and your attitude and really looking at yourself in the mirror of the Holy Scripture, that God exposes to you the areas that you need to be aware of and that you need to repent from. And I hope that God gives you the motivation, equips you with the tools and the people around you to help you do that quicker. Uh, sooner rather than later. And, and I hope that also you understand the importance of prayer. Because if I can leave you with one thing, I, I have found the power of prayer to be one of the, mo the most amazing things in our Christian life. It is the most amazing tool that God has given us, yet we have, we have neglected it for way too long. I talked about last week that God wants us to constantly pray day and night, taking our prayers seriously. Because at the end of the day, when we think about things like addiction, for example, we're addicted to anything, and that could be like watching sports, uh, pornography, uh, substance, of course. If we're addicted to any kind of sin, our prayer should be that God would meet us at the point of desire and change that desire within our heart. Give us eyes like he has to see the depth and the grossness of sin 
in that moment of temptation that when we're thinking about sinning, that we see it for the devilish monster that it really is, not as the enticing piece of fruit that we sometimes see it as. So if I could encourage you with one takeaway this week, it would be this. Dedicate yourselves to prayer. Pray and ask God to take away your desire to sin. Because you could try really, really hard your whole life. I've seen people go through all these programs and still fail. If God, if you invite God into your life and change your heart from a desire, His power can do that. And I have seen that as well. I have seen somebody who loves alcohol. My dad. I've seen my dad. Totally 180 and change. You know what? To this day, he has not touched the drink. God can do that. He did it for my father. He can do it for your addiction as well. So let's pray. Father, thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that we do have a solid rock and foundation upon which we can stand and rely upon your word as truth. I pray, God, that you would give us hearts of righteousness, a true desire to live for you, a true thankfulness for the cost that was paid on our behalf. God, may you just fill our hearts with a desire to repent, to grow in righteousness, because we know that all good things come out of those choices. So help us, Lord. Guard us and protect us from the evil one who seeks around like a roaring lion to devour somebody. Protect us from him. Show us where the exit signs are in those moments of temptation. And God, give us the strength to walk out those doors. We love you, God. I pray that you be with all these people here. You give them joy, peace that passes understanding as they're seeking you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.